0: And suffering, and we kicked off the series by saying, by by basically giving some cold comfort that from when we're in the middle of pain and suffering, and it doesn't seem like uh, God's at work. Uh, how could He allow this to happen? What's going on? And we said, from His throne, He can see from eternity past to eternity into the future, and He is at work. He sees things that we can't see. He has a perspective that we don't have, and so He is. We can we can rest. In the in the in the foundation, in the understanding that God is still on His throne and He is at work. Next week, two weeks ago, we looked at a more personal uh, perspective of pain and suffering. That God, in the middle middle of pain and suffering, He's close to those who are who are hurting. Not only is He close, but He experienced pain and suffering. The Father experienced loss. The Son experienced. Pain and suffering, and then we have this hope of a, of a resurrection. We'll talk a little bit a little bit more about that here in a few minutes. And then last week we saw that as a church we have a job to do. It's our we're, we're we have been commissioned in the middle of pain and suffering to surround people, to encourage them, to literally be Christ in skin. And that leads us to this week, where we're going to look at questions that you have. The reason, we were talking about this as a staff a couple months ago, maybe a month and a half ago, and we were, trying, we were kicking around the idea of doing this Q&A, and, and uh, this is kind of a question that we regularly get, or, or a variation of questions. What's God doing in pain and suffering? Why does he allow it to happen? What's going on? How do I, how do I get out of it? How do I get over it? And uh, we uh, decided, you know, since we answer this question I, at lunch regularly with people, answer this question. Uh, I decided we'll we'll answer those questions and, and more um, from you this morning. I would say before we jump in this week, as I was studying, I was uh, something I probably already knew, but I'd never seen it articulated in, in a way uh, in, in this way. As believers, as Christians, we have the uh, not ability because it's not our ability, but we have the. Uh, Power, we have access to power that allows us to face pain and suffering different than any other world of religion or no religion at all. Let me let me let me explain. A lot of times, when it comes to pain and suffering, uh, there's this idea that as believers, as Christians, because eternity is waiting for us, that we should not. Experience the depth of pain and suffering. It's almost like you know what? Remember, God's in control. He's in charge. You're gonna you're gonna be in heaven one day, so you don't have to. You don't have to go to the depths. You don't have to experience the the, the depths of pain and suffering, because this is what's waiting for us as believers. Others would say, you don't you, you don't go into the depths of pain and suffering. We don't we don't mourn deeply um, because that. Is, is testing or or putting uh, your faith in God is kind of on, on shaky ground when you do that. You're trying to say in some kind of twisted, roundabout way that he's not in charge. He doesn't know what's going on. So to mourn deeply is not a, a Christian response to grief, pain, and suffering. I could not disagree more. However, we go and we mourn deeply. We mourn deeply. Um, at the depths uh, of pain and, and suffering, in a very deep way, but we do it without. We do it with hope. We do it with the understanding that God is still in charge. So we can we can go and we can mourn deeply with those who are mourning, and we can we can ask God. We can uh, what are you, what are you doing? How are you in charge? What's going on? We can. We can look at God and say, God, I don't understand what you're up to. Why you would allow this to happen. We can mourn very, very deeply, but we can do it with a hope. And I would submit no other worldview allows that to happen. Every other worldview, every other religion, no religion at all says either you don't mourn You just pretend like it doesn't exist. You you become one with whatever. And you pretend like it doesn't exist. You just push it out of your mind. Or you allow it to take over you completely without any hope to come. Or understanding that God is on his throne. And yet as believers, as Christians, as those who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, we can take both extremes and they come together and they're fulfilled in the person. Jesus. So we can mourn. We can walk through pain. We can, we can go through the cycle of grief. We can walk through that and we can do it together. And yet we do it with a hope that God is still in charge and he's still on his throne. So when grief hits, I would encourage you as believers to To walk through it. Don't push it out of your mind as if it's not a big or important thing. But walk through grief. Walk with others through grief. But do it with a hope. So, with that as kind of a backdrop, I'd like to get to some of the questions. I've got five this morning. I hope we can get to all of them this morning. uh, Five questions as it deals with pain and suffering. And a Christian perspective on it, or a biblical perspective on it. Number one, the first question we got, they're all anonymous, so I can't tell you who they're from, except for one that's my question, but hopefully we won't get to that one. Uh, Number one is this Why does God give us blessings if He's going to ultimately take them away? You know, as, as a family, we have experienced this, and I know others have. Probably at a, at a much deeper level, and I've, I've struggled with this question. I mean, this is this is a tough one for me. Why would why would God give? if He's going to take away. We, you know, a few years ago, um, we were excited we were going to be having a baby. It was actually before Molly Kate was born, and uh, we were going to have be having a baby. We we're excited about it. we were getting ready. We had passed the the first trimester, so you know we were actually telling people about it, and uh, went to the doctor. Shortly thereafter, and found out that God had given, and God had taken away. Uh, not only that, when Grayson was born, um, you know I've shared this story many times. He was in the hospital, and they—they uh, they, uh, nobody had said that, that that they'd given up hope on him, but they, he was in dire situation. And I just remember sitting in the in the hospital, going, "God, you give and you take away. Blessed be your name." And uh, and uh, luckily. Not luckily, by God's grace, um, we are, uh, Grayson miraculously was healed. And if he had not been, it would have still been by God's grace. Please don't misunderstand that we would have walked through it by his grace. But this is a tough question for me. Why would God give and ultimately take away? If I'm being frank, the answer is I don't know. But I do know that there's some, some, interesting perspectives in God's Word that gives us an insight to what God is up to, that there might be more going on than meets the eye, a perspective that we don't see. So you can turn, if you want to, to Job chapter 1. I'm just going to share a little bit of the the beginning of the story. We're only going to be there for a couple minutes, so if you just want to listen, that's okay. Job chapter 1, God and, and Satan, it's kind of an awkward, weird scene. God and Satan are having this conversation. I never thought that, you know, from my perspective, that God and Satan would have this conversation, but they are. And God says, hey, Satan, have you thought about my servant, Job? He's an upright, righteous man. Have you thought about my servant, Job? And Satan says, well, I've thought about him, yes, but you have a hedge of protection around him. We can't touch him. And that's the reason... Ultimately, that he worships you because you are the giver of good gifts. And that's why he's a righteous and an upright man. It's not because he worships you. It's because you're the giver of good gifts. And if you will take your, your hedge of protection off of Job, he will curse you. His worship will turn to cursing. His praise will turn to cursing. God says... Okay, I'm taking my hedge of protection off of Job. You can do with him what you wish, short of taking his life. And you know the story. Satan shows up on the scene and destroys Job's life. I mean, he takes away everything that this world has to offer. He takes away his cattle, his, his livelihood, his family, his wife, his house. He takes it all away. And at the end of it, the end of the book, Job says this. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And here's the interesting thing about this. in and this is what I have in my notes Job didn't know that when the calamities hit, that God was putting Satan to shame. So here's this thing going on in the cosmos. This, this this not battle, because we already know the battle has been won. But there's this, this back and forth between God and Satan. And God says, look at my look at my servant Job. Consider him. And Job, after facing the, the, the weight that all Satan has to offer. Stands up and says, God, I came to this world with nothing, and I'm going to leave this world with nothing, if it is so your plan. But either way, whether I have a lot or I have nothing at all, your name is going to be praised. Another example. Luke chapter 22. Jesus is talking and he says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like we, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is the Passion Week, it's the end of Jesus' life, and Jesus goes up to, Satan, or to, to Peter and he says, hey, Satan himself has come to, to my father and has asked to have you, to test you. And I'm praying that you will walk through it faithfully. And we know how it ended up. That he, he fell. He, he was he, there at the end of Jesus' life. But ultimately when he saw the risen Savior. He literally changed this world upside down. So here's my only point in the way that I'm answering this question. There are things going on. There's perspective that we simply do not have. Now, does that mean that when, when trials and tribulations sit, that there's some conversation going on between, between Satan and, and God every time? I don't think that's the case. I don't think we see that in Scripture. However, it could be. We see that in Scripture. There's a perspective that we don't have. Here's One of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, says this. If I can get there. says this. If we knew, ultimately, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what He gives and takes away. If we knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly what God gives and He takes away. So why does God give good gifts and ultimately take them away? I don't really know. But I do know this that if we had his perspective, we would understand completely and totally. Second question How can I feel the presence of God again when I have gone through a traumatic experience? Just as a reminder, I would just say remember that God's presence is not a feeling. However, I understand what you're saying. It's more than a feeling. It's whether He's there, whether you feel it or not. But how do I? How do I know God's presence? How do I experience God's presence after walking through the midst of pain and suffering, traumatic experiences in life? This week, as I was trying to figure out this question and, and, and a good biblical response to it, I just kept coming back to this: remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. When we walk through the midst of pain and suffering, when we walk through trials and tribulations, when we walk through difficulty, that time more than any is when we, not more than any, that is when we must preach the gospel to ourselves. Father, I am loved. I have been called. I have been justified. I have been adopted. And I have done, I have been all of these things, not by my own merit, not because I deserve it. But Father, because you love me. Because you proved it on the cross. A couple weeks ago, we talked about this, and I referenced it at the beginning. This is the time to remember that God is close to those who are suffering. He's experienced it himself. And one day, this will all pass. So, in the middle of pain and suffering, trials, tribulations... When life doesn't make sense, and sometimes even when it does, I wake up in the morning preaching the gospel to myself. Father, I am loved. You have proven it. You are worthy of my worship. You are trustworthy. I can can place my life in your hands. You have been faithful time after time after time, and I know you will continue to be faithful through this. Tribulation and trial. And so I would preach the gospel to myself over and over and over again. Job 42 verse 5. After he has walked through that incredible time of difficulty, those years of difficulty, Job says this. When he comes out the other side, he says this. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ears. But now that I've experienced all of this, now that you have taken everything away, and then giving, uh, and I had I remain faithful. He says, "Now my eyes have seen you." So before I heard about you, people had told me about you. I had read about you. I, I I had been told that you were faithful. I'd been told that you were good. I'd been told that you were loving. I had heard about you. But now that I've experienced loss, now that I've experienced pain, now that I've experienced suffering, I have seen you. I've experienced you. I know that everything i heard is true because I've walked through it. So in the middle of trials, traumatic experiences, I preach the gospel to myself all the time, constantly. Father, You, Your grace is deeper. Your grace is wider. It's, it's, it's more than I deserve. And You've been faithful before. I know You'll be faithful again. Question number three. How do you hold on to your faith when you do the right thing and it seems that like you are suffering the consequences for it when other people... Don't, is it doesn't say this in the question, but when other people don't and they're living a good, luxurious life. In other words, Father, I'm being faithful. And pain and suffering is the only result of that. But the people that I work with, the people that I go to school with, the people that I live around, they're living however they want. And they seem to be prospering. How in the world does this make sense? That's a good question. And that's a tough one. I put in my notes, as believers, as followers of Christ, we follow Jesus to get Jesus. Let me say that again and maybe explain it a little bit. As believers, as as followers of Christ, we follow Jesus for only one reason, to get Jesus. Not a luxurious life, not a comfortable life, not a not a life that is that is apart or separated or not experiencing pain and suffering. We follow Jesus for one reason: we get to Savior. If you'll go back with me to that weird scene in Job, Job is having, uh, in, Satan and, and uh, God are having that conversation that we just talked about. And they're going back and forth and and Satan says, hey, the reason that, that Job follows you, the reason that he's faithful, the reason that he worships you is because you give, you have given him great things. You have put this protection over him. You have made him very prosperous. But if you'll take that away, if you'll take that hedge of protection away, if I can have access to Job, he will curse you. And in this moment of manipulation, Satan unknowingly and unwittingly shows the fallacy of the prosperity gospel we we, we dog the, the prosperity gospel around here regularly and we will continue to do it and here's one reason why Satan himself shows the fallacy of the prosperity gospel when he says this you give things to Job, that's why he worships you. Satan has seen this thousands and thousands of times over and over again, that ultimately we, you and I, in our dark hearts, worship the things more than the giver of things. Our heart, my heart, is drawn. It just It's, it's like a magnet. I am a magnet towards worshiping things, comfort, Air conditioning. My heart, just it's it's like a magnet that is drawn to things. And I forsake the giver of those things. My worship is towards those things. Satan knows this and he knows it well. He's seen this time after time after time. When our worship, when we follow Jesus to get the things that he gives, not to get Jesus. Our worship points to the wrong thing. Our devotion points to the wrong thing. I put this in my notes. If we follow Jesus to have a luxurious life, then we're using the Saviour. To get what we ultimately want and worship, luxury and things become our god. So this morning, I'm not I'm not saying I, I I'm hoping or wanting disaster or or things luxurious things taken away from me, luxury by this world standards. But if I ever replace that as my ultimate. If I ever take the giver of those gifts and move him aside and put the gifts on the throne of my life, then I have become an idolater. The thing that I worship will ultimately let me down. I put in my notes, if I can find it, Satan inadvertently pointed out the core error of prosperity gospel. I talked about that. Prosperity obscures. This is what I wanted to share with you. Prosperity obscures rather than reveals where our loyalty and worship truly is. Blessings easily turn into curses as sinners subtly come to love and trust the blessing more than the blesser. So my encouragement, whoever asked this question, would be to continue following the the blessor rather than the blessing, because he is trustworthy, he is faithful, he is true. Verse or uh, question number four. Moving on, and then two more, and we're done. This one is a little bit off topic, uh, off topic, but this is the easiest one to answer, so that's why I'm doing it. Um, why did God create humans when He already had angels? Now. Like I said, this is a little bit off topic, but it still gives us a truth from God's word. And I'm not I, I, when it comes to humans and angels. Um, humans are are the only thing that's created in God's image. In Mago Dei, um, we believe that 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 only humans, the only thing that God created, that is that bears the image of the Creator. So we're different than than the angels from that perspective. We'll ultimately be higher. Angels will serve us. Okay. That's not really what I want to get to when I answer this question. Here's what I want to answer. Why did God create anything anyway? I mean, why did he create us anyway? And put us here to experience this pain and the suffering that we're talking about. Even though he didn't create it. Why did he create us anyway? Why was he a creator? And I think that's the heart of this question. And this is where it's actually kind of fun. We believe... Here at Wellspring and evangelicals across across the the spectrum really um, believe that God is one. He's one God, but he manifests himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's all of them all at once. I can't explain it. But we do know based on scripture that, that they have all existed as one for all of eternity. And in doing so, they have Um, been in fellowship with each other. So they have been in perfect harmony. Many theologians call it a dance, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all God, all one but three manifestations, have been in this dance of constantly submitting themselves to the will and and, and, and the blessings of the other one. So God the Father is constantly... And totally submitting to the Son. And God the Son is, is constantly and perfectly submitting to the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is constantly and totally submitting perfectly to the Father. And there's this perfect dance that's been going on for all of eternity. I know. You're like a dance here? Come on, Scott. I don't even believe in dance. That's all right. Um, this is what many theologians have said. It's perfect. Dance has been going on for all of eternity between God and in the Godhead. And I can't understand it. I don't know how to explain it really. Except for the you know, the best way that I know how is how I'm doing it. This guy, this, guy, this one, who has constantly manifested itself in three persons. Constantly submitting perfectly in this dance to the other. And the reason that this is important. Is because God has been for all of eternity. In perfect relationship with the other manifestations of God. They have had complete and total um, full relationships with each other. They have been, they were in need of nothing. They were completely and totally self sustaining. And it's in the middle of that perfect relationship, total fulfilling relationship that God creates. He never creates out of need. It, for those that believe in multiple gods, that's a that, that, that's completely different, and we could get to that some other time. But for those that believe in one God in one manifestation, they would have to they would have to eventually come uh, admit this: that God, the Father, created us out of need. He needed something. He's a God of relationship, and he needed something. We do not believe that at all. We think God was completely. And totally fulfilled, in perfect relationship, in perfect harmony, for all of eternity. And it was in that perfect harmony, in that perfect relationship, in that total fulfillment. Out of that, he created. The question is then: If he was completely and totally satisfied in perfect relationship, why? And to answer that, I turn to somebody much smarter than me, Jonathan Edwards. He says that the only reason the trying God would have created humans and angels and anything else is this. To share the glory and love that he had. To share, not to get, the love that he had. That's completely different than thinking, understanding, believing that God created us out of some sort of need. He was in perfect harmony. He was totally fulfilled. And it was the overflow of that fulfillment that he created us to share. And if we can understand that perspective, if we understand that in the middle of pain and suffering, when we can understand that in the middle of luxury and in the middle of taking that luxury away, our perspective changes and we get to experience the Savior and the love that he shares with us. Leads us to the last question, and then we're done. This is mine. How does God allow infinite pain to be the consequence of a finite life? I've talked, uh, several of us, uh, of you, have have I had this conversation with. How in the world does God allow infinite pain, infinite suffering for a finite life that that was turned against God? Okay, These are for people that don't know Christ, that have not been saved, they, they haven't repented, they haven't been covered by the blood of the Lamb. Um, many different ways to explain that. But how does God allow that to happen? And I'm two minutes and then I'm done. I had this false assumption. I thought for a while that I had this idea of hell. As people that were cast into hell would as soon as they got there, as soon as they landed there, would understand the error of their ways, and would just wish, hope, pray, whatever whatever word you want to use there, would just like the opportunity to have one more chance to repent. It was almost as if these people, as soon as they were thrown into hell, and, and, and I haven't really given support or, or backed up my, my position on hell, but... I believe that it's the place that people go that don't know Christ and they will go there for all of eternity. I think that's what the Bible teaches. Okay? So that's my stance. If you, have a, if you disagree with me on that, we can have a discussion about that. But that's the, the, the presumption or the assumption that I'm coming from with my answer. And I had this idea that as soon as they landed there, as soon as they, they died and they breathed their first breath there in, 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 apart from Christ in hell, that they would understand the error of their ways. And they would just wish, they would hope. For one more chance. I don't think that that's supported in God's Word as i have at it. In fact, C.S. Lewis says that hell is locked from the inside. Let that sink in for a second. I'm not saying he's necessarily right, but that's what that's his take on it. That, that hell is locked from the inside. Romans chapter one says that God is the giver of things of, of of what we want. He turns if we want if we want carnality. We want we want a, a life that is. That is uh, overtaken by sin. Romans chapter 1 says that he gives us that. He, he, he allows us to have what we want in Romans chapter 1. And I think we see in Luke chapter 16. The only uh, really conversation that we have from some, uh, of somebody that's, that's in hell. And it's actually a parable that Jesus tells. That both of these things are true. That, lock, that hell is locked from the inside. And not only that, but God gives us, he turns us over, he gives us what we want, and that carries on into eternity. So people that have not given their lives to Christ and have instead desired to be their own savior, their own Lord, they can take care of this all themselves That simply goes into eternity. That trajectory goes into eternity. Let me see if I can back this up with some scripture. Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story, this parable, of Lazarus and a rich man. This is the only time in all of Jesus' parables that he actually gives a name, a proper name to somebody. And he says, Lazarus and this rich man, and you remember, he, he kind of juxtaposes or he compares and contrasts these two individuals Lazarus is a poor man, he's a beggar he has sores, Uh, the dogs come up and they lick the sores and then you have this rich man who obviously wears purple enjoys a luxurious life they die and then they kind of switch places for all of eternity Lazarus is a believer And he goes, and the Bible doesn't say that he goes to heaven, but he goes to be beside Abraham. And that's kind of the picture of heaven, but he literally says he goes to be beside Abraham. And then the rich man goes into eternal torment. Hades. Notice I said torment, not torture. God's not torturing anybody there. This is torment. This is the result of their own decisions. Okay? So he juxtaposes these people again. They kind of flip places. And this Rich family, never once does he say, I've made a mistake. Never once does he say, I want to get out. Never once does he say, God is unfair, that he he should not have sent me here. This is not appropriate punishment for my sin. He never says that. And he never says that he wants to get out, except for to go tell his brothers not to come to this place. And there's actually, commentators actually disagree on the, on the meaning of that. Some commentators say that the, the brother, this, this rich man, uh, it was so bad that he didn't want his brothers to go there. I actually think that that's probably the case. But other commenters and other uh, theologians who I respect say, no, that's not what's being taught here at all. What he's saying is, you need to go give my brother more information. You need to go give my brothers more information because God did not give me enough information. I'm here in hell. I'm here separated because God did not hold up his end of the bargain. He didn't give me enough information. I don't happen to be in that camp, but that actually makes my argument a whole lot stronger if that's the case. Either way, this guy, this rich man, never once tries to get out or cause where he is unfair and unjust. So, I think Romans chapter 1 is on to something. That God in this life gives us exactly what we want. And that simply carries on into eternity. For those of us that know Christ and want Him to be the Lord and Savior of our life, that continues on in perfect harmony, and perfect fellowship in in heaven with Him for all of eternity. For those uh, people that reject Christ, they desire to be their own Savior, their own Lord, they're unwilling to submit to the Savior, that simply carries on into eternity. And as a result, C.S. Lewis can say, hell is locked from the inside. I don't know if that does it justice. And I'd love to hear back from you, not right now, all right? But I'd love to hear back from you what you think and what you see from Scripture. Regarding this particular question. Let's pray. And then this series on pain and suffering is over. But we're going to still live there. I know it. Let's pray. Father, this morning I know it was a little bit different. But I pray, I pray that there was some value. Lord, as we wrestle with the... Lord, I know there's people in here right now had conversations with people that are struggling today, facing pain, suffering, and loss, don't understand what you're up to or what's going on. And Father, I know that answering questions doesn't really do anything in that situation. But Father, I pray that the gospel would. Lord, that they would be able to suffer and suffer deeply. They can even ask why. But do it with a hope, understanding that you're still on the throne. So Father, this morning we're here to worship you for your glory and your renown. And we do it so that we can get the Savior, not so that we can get anything else. We worship you. We follow you to get you and you alone because you are the one that we worship. You're the one that we adore. We will. Our, our prayer, Father, even our in, in our darkness, the darkness of our heart, our prayer is that we would not use you to get other things. But we would worship you to get you. In Jesus' name we pray.